Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Axiom, a recognized leader in the business of law. Axiom provides tech-enabled legal contracts and compliance solutions for large enterprises. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot, and I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable business development success. Go to leftfoot.com for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest works with her organization's largest global institutional clients, providing counsel on global B2B cash and card payment businesses. She practices in a variety of legal disciplines, including privacy and data security, internet, e-commerce, IP, bank regulatory, securities, and bankruptcy. Director, Associate General Counsel, Citibank, Anjali Garg, welcome to Left Foot. Thank you, Nicole, and thank you for that introduction and for having me on your podcast. Before we begin, I'm going to invoke a disclaimer. Anything I say on this podcast is my personal view and not the views or opinions of my employer. Great. Glad to have you as a guest on our program. And for our listeners, we're doing our interview in person, which is different for us. So I'm excited to do that. Let's start with our questions. We're going to start with a question we ask a lot of our guests, and it is about your transition from being in a firm to an in-house legal department. What personal strengths or habits have allowed you to make that transition successful? Well, for myself, I'd like to highlight three areas. The first is flexibility and adaptability. I've been practicing law for over 17 years now, and one of the keys for me has been adapting to different leadership styles, to different substantive areas of knowledge, uh, different levels of seniority, changes in organizations that I've been with, as well as the content of the work and building expertise in different areas of law over time. So that's one area that I think that has really served me well is being able to be flexible and adaptable. Another is listening and understanding the goals and culture of my business and my company. Being in-house as a GC, you need to listen more and talk less. I've been fortunate to work with very smart people who know what they need to achieve and have a vision for their business and for the company. I'm part of the team to help achieve those goals, of course, with minimizing risk to the institution. I play that dual role. To do that successfully, you really have to hear what they want to achieve and then structure the right solution that maximizes the PL and minimizes risk to the institution. The third area I'd like to highlight is being strategic and concise. Again, as a GC, you need to understand the overall picture as well as get into the weeds. I've been able to gain the trust in my business and show my value so that I have a seat at the table and they proactively come to me with issues and deals, not reactively. And for that, you have to be mindful of their time and their goals. Terrific responses. I want to ask more about the risk and the profitability because that I can see that being some conflict there. And we do hear that even from law firm lawyers who say, you know, that is a balance. How do I make sure that I'm protecting my client, but working at the speed that they need to work, helping them make decisions on the 
schedule that they need those decisions made. And often that requires that we take some risk ourselves as a firm. I'm assuming in-house, same challenges. How do you balance that? And have you had a situation where you had to really invoke the need to say there's going to be too much risk if we go in that direction? You know, is there some example or experience that you can convey to our listeners? Sure. I've been fortunate to work at companies that have zero tolerance for doing anything illegal, unethical. There is no bad intention on the part of any of the people that come to structure anything. But obviously, that's why you're at the table, whether you're a lawyer like myself or a compliance officer. The trick is to understand what it is that the business wants to achieve. There's more than one way to achieve something. And sometimes they may say that they want to structure things a certain way, but it's not really that they're wedded to that structure. It's more so that they want a certain result. The value that we add as legal professionals is to sit there and to really understand what it is that the business is trying to achieve and then find a solution that works from a regulatory standpoint as well as an ethical standpoint. I really haven't had too much of that to deal with, to be very honest with you. And if there has been an issue, I've just pointed it out. And usually that's enough. If there's something that's gray, there's always escalations. It sounds like you're a, you're a true partner to the teams that you teams that you participate on and that they see that and that your flexibility is part of that, that you're able to come in, be a team member. So I'm going to ask another follow-up question. Do you feel that having some business background has really helped you now as you work with teams because you're able to really understand what their goals are from a profitability perspective? And if you could convey to our listeners how you've gained some business knowledge to work for an organization like Citibank that I'm sure that you have some business acumen and how did you get that business acumen? Definitely, it's important to gain an understanding of the business that you support. I went straight from undergrad to law school to working, but I've been fortunate. The law firm even that I practiced in, I was at Sullivan and Cromwell when I first started. I was there for four years and it was a great training ground, both from the hard skills of being a lawyer, but also on the soft skills of negotiation, working with people at different levels and conveying the right tone and structure to a deal. The other piece that you're talking about in terms of getting business knowledge, it was always an importance to understand the industry, if not the exact company itself. Being outside the organization, you have less of a in-depth view into the company, which is what I like about being in-house, which is that you really have that in-depth look. It's a long way of answering your question, which is I've sort of picked it up as I've gone along. Because in order to really lawyer a business, especially as a GC, you really need to understand it end-to-end because everyone comes to you. There'll be so many different times when you see projects coming from every member of the team and you're one person through which it flows. And so then you can see the big picture and put it all together. The other thing that I've done very much in my career is that when I come new into an organization, into a business that I'm supporting, even if it's the same organization, but a different business, is to set up meetings with senior business leaders or stakeholders too, whether it be risk or finance or ops, to understand what their goals are and what their challenges are. And that's been really helpful for me to get an overview of the business. Another thing is that I sit on the executive committee for one of the businesses I support, and that's hugely beneficial because you really get to see what everyone's goals and strategies are coming up for the year and day to day as you sit on the committee because we meet on a regular basis what are the issues that are important and what we need to focus on and you build relationships I think that's the number one thing I would say that's been key for me is building relationships not just with the business but with
with colleagues abroad, supported global businesses. I enjoy that. And having formed relationships with my colleagues in different jurisdictions has been invaluable, as well as forming relationships with stakeholders across the company. It does, at the end of the day, it's enjoyable for me, but it also really helps everyone. It helps me as a professional, it helps them, and it helps the whole entire company. When you're connected up like that, you see issues, you get in front of issues, you share learning so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's just such a host of benefits to that. I do agree. Business acumen often comes on the job, especially if you're interested and curious about the business. And it's necessary no matter what your role. And as a legal professional, as a business development professional, whatever that role is, as a marketing professional, you know, you have to understand the business you support and you can learn that in the seat, but you have to be interested. So our next question talks about selecting outside resources to rely on within your organization. And our listeners, as you know, are lawyers. They're practicing lawyers. They're partners in large firms. They're partners in boutiques and some solos that are listening in. And they're very interested in how you select the partners you're going to work with, the criteria you look for. If you could share kind of what's important for you when selecting those partners, that'd be terrific. You need to consider their expertise for what you're hiring them for, the cost that's involved. But beyond that, I look for someone who is business-minded, concise, and then takes the time to learn the business and understand what we're looking to achieve. In an organization that's very big, my organizations that I've supported have been very big, you have multiple stakeholders and you have multiple uh, levels and you want someone who can not just give legal advice, but also be diplomatic in their approach. So those are critical skills in my book. So these are ways of navigating that are beyond having the skills, the hard skills. The outside counsel to have the specific expertise, to have the right cost, be able to navigate different structures, different personalities, and to do it in a diplomatic way that brings people together. Background in that space, working for a reputable organization, they need those just to get in the door. But to stay in-house, they need to have those other skills, as we go back to the ability to build a relationship, the interest in your business. Those tend to be the next requirement. So I'm going to ask an another question because we hear I'm a lawyer. I think I'm friendly. I think I'm interested. I'm curious. Is there something more tactical that you can reflect on that an outside counselor could be a service provider, a legal tech provider? Is there something that one or two of those partners do that really resonates for you? And if you could share that with our listeners, that'd be helpful. One of the things is responsiveness. Obviously, everybody's very busy. One of the things I look for and that wins points with me is that an outside counsel gets back to me quickly, even if it's to say, I can't get to this until this date. If you need it faster, let me know. I can try to work something out. If it has to sit there and I have to chase them, that's not very helpful. See, another thing is to be able to give practical and quick advice as well. For example, sometimes you just need a smell test from an outside counsel, but you're not looking for a legal memo or an opinion that needs to go through a management committee. Obviously, understanding that outside counsel have to cover their bases and also have to have disclaimers attached to what they give. Some of the best outside counsels I've worked with have understood that sometimes quick advice is needed and sometimes you just need an email to convey that advice. You can put caveats in there if you need to, but you don't have to do a full-blown legal opinion. The risk
risk is not that high to the firm, and so they take a much more practical approach. So to me, that's that's part of being concise and business-minded. You want somebody who's going to partner with you and not see you as somebody who they have to protect themselves against. So they have to have skin in the game. And I think you have to be comfortable with yourself as a professional, that you know what you're doing, you have the expertise, and that you can at least put that out there. Obviously not in an unsafe way. I'm not saying you say something that you don't agree with or that's going to expose you to a lot of risk, but some outside counsel aren't even willing to put what they're 100% sure of in writing, which I think is a bit problematic. Where does that come from? And I know they're trying to protect themselves. And I would assume as time goes on, counsel becomes more comfortable doing that. Do you think that's a big part of it? It's, it's not the billable hour and the idea that if I do a brief or if I do an organized item that it's cash. I, you know, I just don't think that lawyers are driven that way. Do you think it really is? They're not comfortable with the risk. And if so, how have you as a purchaser of their services or a client helped to calm that? that fear, that that lack of desire to to be responsive? You know, honestly, I don't know what's driving that response from them. I think sometimes they just don't think outside the box or that's what they've been taught. And so they feel that that's the right approach and to do something else just doesn't feel right. I would have to be guessing here and speculating. I don't push my counsel to do something that they're not comfortable with doing. In terms of what I've found to be successful in an outside counsel is when they're willing to think outside the box and to provide help and advice in a way that's meaningful for my company and for me and helpful. And that I remember. And now a word from our sponsor. Axiom Solutions combine legal experience, technology, and data analytics to deliver work in a way that dramatically reduces risk, cost, and cycle time. With over 1,200 lawyers and 2,000 plus employees across three continents, we experience a nerdy excitement from improving the way legal, compliance, and contracts work is done. For more information, go to axiomlaw.com. Nicole here and a shout out and thank you for tuning in to the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to refresh your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will refresh your efforts in three areas. Business Development Grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to leftfoot.com. We've talked and we've prepared for today. Our listeners are tuning in to hear how lawyers have been successful in acquiring business and or retaining clients or getting additional business with clients. So they're always interested in hearing about success stories where a lawyer or firm has done a real solid job of getting a piece of business with a corporate account. For you, have you experienced an organization coming in, a firm, a legal services vendor that did a just exceptional job 
and acquiring your business. And if you could convey what that looked like, that would be terrific. I definitely have had experiences with firms. I should really say people that have wowed me because honestly, yes, the firm and the name of the firm is important because it's an indicator of quality in some respects. Honestly, I judge the quality of the service, not from the name of the firm, but from the lawyers that I've personally interacted with. And I've been fortunate to work with some great people who are not only good at what they do, but they're good at how they do it. Law is a service industry. We know that. And so when you're in-house, you have multiple clients. You have your internal stakeholders and you also have the external clients of your clients who are also your clients in a sense, not from a legal lawyering perspective, but you're also mindful of them. So an outside counsel who's been successful working with me and working with the businesses I support has taken the time to understand that dynamic of the deal, the players, the unsaid things, as well as the said things. And they really focus on the value they can add in that picture, as well as the strategic role in the process. They basically function like in-house lawyers in spirit, rather than looking at things from a 10,000 foot level. It's not from a detached point of view that I'm an external counsel and I'm here to just do that bit that I need to do as an external counsel, but it's really to be engaged and to add value where you can. That's a skill that not all lawyers have. Sets apart private practice lawyers who have those skills. It's people skills. It's understanding. It's an emotional intelligence. It plays out in every aspect of life, including as a really good outside counsel that people want to hire. They're soft skills. They're necessary soft skills. We've heard a lot of different things from guests about about, you know, people I know in my personal life know me and then that translates into my professional life if I have the opportunity to do business with them or someone they know because they know me in my real life, other life, which I think is kind of interesting. It's like, how do we translate the things that we probably do really well with our friends and the parents of our child's friends and our relationships outside of work? How do we translate those into a work environment that's comfortable? And I think that's kind of where there's a wall there somewhere. It's really a lead into this next question, which is about situations where you've had someone come in who is interested in working with your organization, were really not successful in their approach to working with you. And we bring this up because we hear often from law firms that when they go out and pitch on a piece of business that they never lose, they just didn't get it yet. And that to me is somewhat different than, wow, you know, I went in there, I tried to pitch on business and I was not awarded the business. I did not earn it. Can I reflect on that? We often hear, well, it's just not time. Anything, points you can make about an opportunity where someone did come in in search of business with your organization and they didn't quite come with their A game? I think the number one thing is to know what you're talking about and to convey that you know what you're talking about. Often I see people who perhaps do have deep expertise, but they don't know how to communicate it well, or they communicate it in five sentences what they could have said in one. And so you lose confidence in that person from a number of standpoints. One is you're not looking to rack up bills and that may not be their intent, but you just get an impression that perhaps they're not going to really provide cost-effective value and or that they don't really understand what they're talking about. And so that's one thing in terms of a pitch. You really do want to be careful what you pitched and how well do you know what you do in your area of law, exactly. In terms of the outside counsel that I've worked with that haven't been successful, number one I would think, thing I would say is mistakes. Like I said, I went to Sullivan and Cromwell my first four years. I remember that every single I had to be dotted and every T had to be crossed. So I was shocked when I got work product from outside counsel that that had mistakes that I had to correct. 
to me, that's unacceptable because that's not something that I should be doing as an in-house counsel. If I'm hiring you as my outside counsel, the work should be polished. It doesn't have to be 100% beautiful and perfect, but it should not have inaccuracies in it. It should not have inconsistencies in it. So that's one thing that, to me, strikes a counsel from my list is someone whose mistakes I have to correct. The other thing is lack of communications or delays in communications. That's something that, again, is very problematic because a lot of the times when you hire outside counsel, it's not just for their expertise, but also for timely service because you don't necessarily have the time to do it. And so, again, it doesn't mean that they have to do it right that second, but they should at least let you know what their timeline is like. And if they don't communicate that back, that's very difficult because then you're waiting on them. And the last thing I'd say is when, again, and I've, these are themes that I've sort of communicated throughout the podcast, I think I've been pretty consistent on that, is where the outside counsel just goes on and on, is pedantic, doesn't really get to the point. That's another thing that, that turns me off of the outside counsel. Those are very specific. Today, there's so much information. If you just spent a half an hour prepping a particular situation, you could be that much more prepared. Or if you spend a few minutes running through what you're going to say, how you're going to handle a, a face-to-face meeting. Do you think that's a lot of it? And then let's come back to communicating and mistakes, because I've heard this from other in-house counsel, and it's surprising. But first, the first point being, do you think it's preparation? I think that there's a lot of pressure to win business. And so sometimes I get the impression, and I could be wrong. I know it's not easy, so it's easy to criticize people. And I don't mean to be doing that at all on this podcast, but I think a lot of times people may have a scattershot approach where they throw a lot of darts out there and hope something will stick, in which case they may not be preparing specifically for you but may just be preparing generally. Perhaps that's what's going on. But I think part of it is going back and saying, well, what is it that I bring to the table that someone else doesn't necessarily bring? And how does that help this particular organization or this particular division within that organization? That's going to help win business better than a scattershot approach. Some great advice in the idea of you're coming in and you're not prepped because it's not really your specialty, but you're doing this scattershot approach. Maybe that's not the best use of time. You might want to spend more time focused on your specialty or focused in a specific area. Let's chat about communication and mistakes. I have heard this now uh, more often than I ever thought I would. We hear a lot about communication, not getting back to the client when commitment dates are come and gone and they still haven't responded to the client or told them that they're going to miss the date. The mistakes, I'm just really surprised. Why would you pay for outside counsel if they're going to make errors that you need to correct? We have heard present the information in a way that I can immediately provide that to my business leaders versus lawyer to lawyer. And I've heard that as some feedback that we need to really address on communication. Any comments on the mistakes and and how you would address that with counsel so that could be corrected and then communication, possibly a guideline, three things that they could do to communicate better with you. Just to separate out some of those issues. In terms of mistakes, be careful about your work product. And if you have junior people doing it, then you should be reviewing it carefully before it goes out the door. And I think a lot of times people are stretched for time. And so I see that that may result in sloppiness, but that's a sure way to to lose business. It's really not a wise strategy. In terms of how to best communicate and what you said about whether it's ready to go to the business versus going to the in-house counsel, I think that's all part of understanding how you 
want to work together. So I think one of the things that people don't do enough is to proactively ask. You can also ask your in-house counsel who's hiring you, do you prefer for me to call you or to email you, for example? Would you rather that I have directly talked to your business people on a deal or would you let and copy you? Or would you like to be on every single call? Or would you like to have everything go through you? What communications am I able to do directly with the business? What communications have to go through you? And how much do I keep you in the loop? It's going to depend, right? If there's a regulatory issue, they're not going to go to the business. They're going to work with you. If there's a deal that's extensive and involved, there's going to be times when they have to discuss it directly with the business folks so they can get the relevant information they need. So I think part of the challenge is just being able to ask those questions and get those answers. And maybe it's hard for them as well when they're speaking to in-house counsel to get clear answers. So it can go both ways. But I would say ask. It doesn't hurt to ask. And in fact, it makes you look more thoughtful in any case. And there's less room for error. Just be upfront and just be direct. So interesting. We talk about business development being a skill that you need to get a job, to get a promotion, to get buy-in from others, to get volunteers, to do team activities. When you think about business development, a lot of these skills are communication. Why not ask? I think there's some idea that possibly the person presenting thinks they should know the answer. They don't have to ask, but it is preference. And without asking, you're not going to know. And we heard this a lot. We hear it a lot when it's about a pitch where we don't ask the qualifying questions. You might structure an entire pitch to go one direction. The client really wanted something totally different that you can do, but you created your pitch based on an assumption or on something that someone told you that they once heard about the organization and therefore you're going to create that strategy. absolutely agree. Having that conversation. Yes, it seems like common sense, but it doesn't happen that often. We hear it doesn't happen. So how can we break down those walls and create that relationship that everyone talks about? I want to chat a bit about innovation. There's so much going on. We'll talk about changing market conditions too. What have you seen in the last five years that you're like, wow, that is really innovative. That is going to change the work that I'm doing, the work the legal department within Citibank is doing. I can say right now that I haven't seen a whole lot of innovation on this part of private practice to adapt to the changing needs of legal services in the industry. I think a lot of firms are still functioning in the same model of the billable hours. I think that law firms by nature tend to be more conservative and tend to change more slowly with the times. I can talk about some of the changes, right? There's the rise of artificial intelligence and data analytics, which is changing some ways that, at least on the litigation side, that contracts are being analyzed through databases to identify risks. And there is a rise of budgetary pressures across every industry and company, I would say. And the rise of globality in terms of everyone is looking for a full service answer, if you will. Most multinational companies need to have deals and projects structured in a way that is successful under different legal regimes. So if there's law firms, and I'm not talking about law firms that have offices all over the world, it's more, how do you take a global approach to lawyering? And I know that's a strange thing to say for a lawyer because we ourselves are very conscious of the fact that we're licensed to practice in a specific state even, and then in different countries and jurisdictions. It's something to think about as to how there could be a way for a firm to perhaps 
take a global approach in providing legal advice. I don't know what that looks like, but it's just something I toss out there. So it's quite interesting. My experience, I worked at Xerox and I had global responsibilities for the actuarial firm we owned. And we had a similar challenge. We did have team members through our own entity and then partnerships globally, but we didn't have a global strategy. We had basically local partners providing local solutions to our global clients when they had needs in those areas. There wasn't anything that really tied them together. There wasn't an approach. There wasn't a methodology. There was basically local support locally, which is kind of interesting. Then why not just contract with local support locally? It was it's very interesting. So I think there is a challenge out there. And actually what I'm going to do now is add that to our questions because it's a terrific question to ask, especially our firms. You know, what what are you doing to make that more of a cohesive approach to the global needs of your clients? Huge opportunity if they could do that successfully. Price has come up, the hourly billing rates have come up and working that way. Budgets and some constraint around budgeting and some efficiencies, that word was used as well. You know, what are you seeing from a changing market conditions as a buyer of legal services? Are you looking for project management, firms that come to you or organizations that come to you with solid project management? Are you looking for organizations that come and say, we use these six types of technology that make us more efficient? Is that part of your evaluation of those organizations you're working with? I think that a lot of times, if they do have some sort of technology to make life easier, it would behoove them to tell us that. Most of the time, what we're looking for in a firm is is someone who is responsive and able to do the job as quickly as possible at the lowest cost. But also, as I said, with those other considerations that I mentioned, being able to do it in a very diplomatic and emotionally intelligent way. And maybe that's a tall order, but shouldn't be for attorneys because that's really our training, right? It's really to be able to effectively communicate across lines and understand the dynamics of a deal or a situation and to be able to fit yourself in there and add value because that's really what you want at the end of the day. Now, in terms of how you structure and you mentioned project management, you mentioned different things. I think that would depend on the type of deal and the type of service that you're providing. Now, if you're providing regulatory advice, you don't really need to project manage anything necessarily. You should, for example, if you're providing that advice in the context of a deal, be able to be cognizant of the overall picture of the deal so that your advice isn't just based on what someone says to you or asks you, but it's also based on your understanding of of how the deal is structured. Again, not taking a very siloed approach is helpful. I think that idea of understanding the organization, how the response is going to be used, and to your point, it's really different depending on what kind of matter they're working on. Important advice, maybe you look at each matter, each area, and what you need. Because litigation and things like that, yeah, project management or purchasing of a company and acquisition, the M&A work, bigger projects with a deadline, with a very significant deadline. What advice would you have for lawyers that are just starting out, either are in a firm, have made partner, they're in what we call the valley of despair, they're a few years possibly into partnership, and they have to bring in clients. Any advice you would give those lawyers as to how they would should approach that part of their responsibilities? I, again, will go back to the same things I said before, which is really understand the value you bring to the table. And that means understanding your hard skills and your soft skills, and then understand what your client needs and wants and how that value translates into that client's needs. 
because that I think is half the battle. It's not an easy thing to do because you have to understand what they need in order to answer that question. And I think often people skirt the edges and they say things that they think people want to hear. But really, honestly, it's to really know yourself in that sense. What is it that you bring to the table that's uniquely you? And then how does that translate into what this person or this organization needs? You're thoughtful about your responses. I hear that as almost a theme. It'd be great if others were as thoughtful. Approaching work or doing the work, it's a big factor. I think we can't all get so busy that we can't do quality work. The pressure's on practice groups if they can't do good work and communicate well, there's something really wrong with that model. A sense you enjoy your work, you enjoy what you do. What can you highlight for our listeners that really makes your work enjoyable? So for me, I really enjoy the strategic nature of my role. Having a seat at the table with the business, understanding what they need and want, whether it's a specific deal or an overall strategy, being able to understand it, analyze it, break it down, fully understand it, put it back together, and then find a solution to it. I really enjoy a geeky answer, but, but I do really enjoy that. And I really enjoy working with people, especially globally. So having a team that's global, you have all sorts of different viewpoints and perspectives and and cultural perspectives as well, which I think is quite interesting. So that to me is the is the most enjoyable part, the strategic part and the collaboration part. No, I absolutely agree. In my global roles, it was just that much more interesting. And even if we had to slow things down sometimes so that everyone could make sure we were understanding each other, it was terrific. Angelie, we appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? Just to thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure and privilege for me to be here. And also just to say to me that the professional journey has been one of constant reinvention. And I think that's something that's held me in good stead. And I think that that's something that helps most other people keep up with the changing times. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time. Thank you.